Okay, we're going to look at Psalm 126 this morning. Um, so, you know, in preparation for General Assembly uh, this week, um, made it a little bit easier on myself by going back to the archives and dusting this one off uh, from a few years ago. I mean, can you believe it's already been three years since we were in the Psalms? Uh, it seems like just last summer, but uh, I miss preaching through the Psalms, so I'm glad for the chance to revisit one of them here. And then uh, again, next Sunday, uh, Charlie Shaw and I were doing that pulpit swap, and he, he's going to bring another psalm, uh, Psalm 9. So a couple weeks in the Psalms, and then after that, we'll get back into our series in Matthew's Gospel. So uh, Psalm 126 this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for all the scriptures, uh, for your words to us. We thank you for these uh, psalms in particular, which are your words, uh, but to be taken up on our own lips as our songs and prayers back to you. We pray that you teach us now to hear and pray this psalm with reference to your son Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, there's this great video on YouTube uh, of the writer Kurt Vonnegut uh, teaching about the shapes of stories. If you wanted to look at it, you could just search on YouTube, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, Shapes of Stories. Uh, he's up in front of a large crowd uh, giving sort of a classroom lecture uh, using a chalkboard you know, to chart out some of the most common uh, basic plots of stories. And some of us have watched this video together. I remember we did that once on a men's retreat. Uh, it's great. It's really funny. <clears throat> so uh, Kurt Vonnegut, he talks about you know, these different plots. One of, the, one of the plots, one of the basic ones, is the man in hole plot, which he says needn't be about a man and needn't be about a hole. But, you know, somebody's going along and they get into trouble and they get out again. And people love that story and they never get sick of it. <laughs> it's just like a basic uh, storyline to be charted on a chalkboard. <clears throat> and there's the... Um, the boy gets girl plot, right? So it doesn't have to be about a boy or a girl, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> but something wonderful happens, like the boy meets the girl. And then something goes wrong, boy loses girl. But then things get better because the boy gets girl back, right? And then there's the most popular plot in Western civilization, he says, where things uh, start off really terribly, really low on this chart that he's graphing out. Uh, there's a poor little girl. She's suffering miserably. You know, her mother has died. The father has married, uh, remarried a vile, ugly woman with two mean daughters. And uh, then the father dies, and she's left alone with this mean stepfamily. And there's a party at the palace, but she can't go. But then things get really good. The fairy godmother comes along, and the girl goes to the party, and she dances with the prince, and she has a great time. It's a night to remember. But then things get worse. <clears throat> the clock strikes 12. All of it disappears, except for the memory. And she's stuck again with her evil stepfamily. But in the end, you know, the prince finds her. And the shoe fits, and she achieves off-scale infinite happiness, right? And they lived happily ever after. 
So it's everyone's favorite story. <clears throat> most stories that people love to hear, most stories that people love to tell, uh, most stories that have endured through the ages end with some version of they lived happily ever after. Right? Um, you might say that we're hardwired to love a story with a happy ending. Uh, part of that instinct is uh, that, that we want to desperately believe and hope that the stories of our own lives will have happy endings because usually right now we're in a moment where it's, it's a low part of the story. <clears throat> so the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, uh, question and answer 17, says that the, the fall, you know, when we uh, rebelled against God, when we sinned, the fall of humanity, it brought humanity into an estate of sin and misery. So if you're charting the graph, the whole of humanity just went plunged down, right? That man in a hole, that's the fall, brings us into an estate of sin and misery. Maybe it's so possible to be, uh, maybe it's possible to be so cynical that you think that there's absolutely no way for the story of your life to have a happy ending. But in general, whether or not we can actually imagine the possibility of what that might be, we wish it were true, right? We wish that our stories would end and they lived happily ever after and achieve this off-scale infinite happiness. <clears throat> that instinct is probably largely shaped by the uh, wonderful story of the gospel, which has influenced people and cultures uh, around the world for 2,000 years. Before the gospel came to reshape the world, um, most stories were basically hopeless tragedies. Um, most, I mean, the stories that we have recorded from the time before the gospel came uh, were hopeless tragedies. But since Jesus came into the world, since the good news of him has spread around the world, the shapes of popular stories and the shape of our imagination has changed. And now we have these comedies and now we have hopeful stories and we have stories where the, the good guys win and the good guys get the girl and they live happily ever after, right? So, so the instinct to want to have our own stories and in this everlasting joy is largely due to the influence of the gospel story in culture, in Western culture, <clears throat> especially. But the desire to live happily ever after, I think that's universal. Not just confined to Western culture. It resonates with all kinds of people in every culture. When people hear the gospel for the first time and believe it, and the good news of everlasting joy in God's presence sounds like something we were looking for all along and just didn't know it. It resonates with something deep inside of us. <clears throat> it seems to be a residual effect of the original state of our creation, you could say once upon a time, uh, humanity was holy and happy in God's presence. And there seems to be this innate longing to recover something of that joy. Maybe we can't articulate it, um, but there is a desire for a happy ending to our stories, which is, it seems like it's a fading echo of what it means to be created in God's image. It's waiting to be amplified by the hope of the gospel, special revelation from God about his love for us. We love happy endings to stories because we're made in God's image. And God loves happy endings to stories. The proof of that is in the scriptures, uh, which were revolutionary in the history of the world, as they contain actually a glorious vision of the trajectory of the human story. <clears throat> God has written countless stories in the lives of people throughout history, and he's filled the Holy Scriptures with little stories that have happy endings. So many of them. The whole arc of the Bible as a story, especially the story of his son, Jesus, the story into which believers are brought through the Spirit, through our union with Jesus. We're brought into his story, 
The great story, we already know it ends with resurrection. It ends with glory. We already know the ending to Jesus' story. Even uh, writing several hundred years before Jesus, the psalmist writes Psalm 126. We're not exactly sure which uh, person wrote it. Um, But the psalmist sees, uh, sees this pattern and is convinced that it's God's pattern. It's the overall shape of the stories that God loves to write and to tell. So he says, uh, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And you could say it was like a fairy tale ending for us that we didn't expect. It was dreamlike. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has great, uh, done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. So it's pretty likely that <clears throat> this is talking about the restoration of Jerusalem and the people of Judah after the exile into Babylon. Uh, so here's the shape of the, the story of God's people, as a people. They were nobody. They were nobody. They were slaves in Egypt, in a foreign land. They were real low. Uh, and then in the Exodus, God made them a people. He made them his chosen people. So they got higher on this you know, storyline chart. But uh, they'd continued in centuries in their sin and their rebellion, They'd blown all the opportunities that God gave them to repent. They'd made ruin of their lives. They'd made mockery of God's presence with them. They brought shame upon themselves and on the name of Yahweh in the world. So they were in this big hole, and it was their own fault. Very early on in their history, in Deuteronomy, God had said, uh, in anticipation of such a time, uh, that uh, that he would curse them for such disobedience. And so he did this, And, and this evil juggernaut of a nation an empire, Babylon, <clears throat> came and wiped them out and carried them off into slavery and, and into forced assimilation. So they hit rock bottom in the arc of the story. You can't get any lower than this in their story, but uh, their story didn't end there, right? So God had planned the shape of this story long before it was worked out in the history of the people. So long before all this happened in Deuteronomy, <clears throat> he says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So there you have the promise that God... Uh, would restore their fortunes, right? And that's the same language we find in Psalm 126. This petition, restore our fortunes. You have done that. Please do it again. Uh, You find that phrase 27 times in the Old Testament. It's a popular phrase. Uh, It's the kind of story that God writes, the kind where fortunes are restored. And then made even greater than they originally were before the storyline tanked, right? Before it plummeted. Psalm 126 finds God's people. They're in another hole now. Uh, or it's just to be used for when you're in the hole. <clears throat> they need their fortunes restored. So the writer of this psalm in the first half uh, rehearses the history of God restoring the fortunes of his people, and he's glad to have such a God as Yahweh, because this is such a pattern with Yahweh. It is so indicative of the character of this God that the writer of the psalm really takes it for a promise that God will do it again. And he asks God to do it again. Do it bigger, do it better, do it forever this time. Right? So, so the last half of the psalm, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. 
Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home. Right? This is the promise. Shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So, uh, you know, asking for restored fortunes like streams in the Negev. The Negev is the dry, parched desert land in southern Judah that's on the road to Africa. So there are these dry gulches uh, there called wadis. We've talked about this before. I mean, I've preached this whole sermon before, so yeah. Uh, <coughs> um, uh, these wadis, these dry gulches, they flow with water uh, when the rains return, which is probably, I think, rare in the desert land like that. Uh, the psalmist is uh, asking for the blessing of restored fortunes that comes like a sudden torrent that's falling from the heavens, right? making the desert a place of life and beauty. And he expresses his confidence that somehow this is going to happen. Right? Uh, it is as sure as the universal agricultural practice, a very simple basic practice worldwide, of sowing seed and then reaping harvest. Right? We don't know how it happens. Sometimes it seems like wondrous magic. But when you sow some seeds in the ground where it looks like they're just dormant or dead, then new life grows. And at the right time, there's a harvest. And then there's a harvest party with laughter and joy. Right? And there's a high enough degree of probability of this happening, this sowing and harvesting, that the, pro- the process of that becomes proverbial for it. a certainty. It's certain. You reap what you sow. You do reap what you sow. As surely as you sow little pumpkin seeds, you will reap great big glorious pumpkins. As surely as you sow little sunflower seeds, you will reap tall, bright, happy sunflowers, right? In Christ, as surely as you sow tears in this life, you shall reap with shouts of joy as you come home to the great harvest party of the resurrection from the dead. So the... um, Like a sown seed, your life uh, might not look like much in its dormancy. Your life might be full of the tears of misery and suffering and grief. You might even lay in the grave with no life at all. That's going to happen. Dead as a seed in the ground. The Bible's not naive about suffering. It does not paint a rosy picture of life and death in this world. It is the most honest book about life and death in this world. But praise the Lord, the Bible reveals that all the stories of God's people are heading toward resurrection. All of them. When you sow that little hard life with all its suffering, you will reap a great, big, tall, bright, happy, glorious life in the resurrection. You have the guarantee of it in the story of God's Son, Jesus. I mean, this... The story isn't just any old story. The gospel story is the true story that God brings us into and makes it our story because he unites us to the hero of this story as the Spirit uh, unites us to Christ as we believe. So Jesus' story ties together all the best kinds of stories. You've got the quest uh, plot line. You've got the man in the hole plot line. You've got the boy meets girl plot line. You've got the Cinderella plot line. All, All the best ones, right? So once upon a time uh, doesn't quite work to open his story technically uh, because as the second person of the Trinity, uh, he has always lived even before there was time. He was 
without beginning in the eternal glory of God. But at the right time, the Son of God ventured forth into the far country, and he took on our flesh, and the Lord Jesus did mortal battle with the prince of darkness to win his beloved people, to win his bride back from the power of death. The Creator condescended to take a created human nature to himself. He united himself to us once and for all, and he pledged himself to us in a faithful love that is stronger than death. He endured the greatest suffering anyone's ever known. He lost everything and everyone precious to him, all his wealth and health, his friends even, betrayed and abandoned him. Even his father turned his face away. He went from the greatest heights of heaven to the lowest depths of hell, descending even into the silence of the grave in order to rescue his people. So if ever there was a man in a hole, it was Jesus in a sealed tomb. But God the Father wouldn't let the story end there. He raised his son from the dead, and he restored his fortunes. He restored his son's fortunes to the point of exalting him far beyond all the heavens and seating him at his own right hand on his own throne. And if you trust Jesus, if the Spirit has united you to him, then God has brought you into the story of his son, and he's made it your story. That same plot line, the Jesus story plot line, right, is yours. You're along for the same ride heading toward the same conclusion. So, so let's be honest, because Jesus suffered, you also will suffer. Because he sowed in tears you also will sow in tears. But because God raised him from the dead, God will also raise you from the dead. And because God has glorified Jesus in his presence, he will also glorify you, and each one of your tears will become shouts of joy. This is the true story that God has already written. You can read it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Judeans uh, who were in exile in Babylon, you know, they knew something of this script ahead of time. They could have looked at the scriptures and trusted and believed the promise. <clears throat> they, they had scriptures like this from Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, to the land where they lived with him. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, right? Plans to end in resurrection and not in death to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me, and I'll hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So in Christ, you know that all God's plans for you are good because you've seen them manifested in his life. The plans for your humanity have been manifested in the humanity and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You know that your fortunes will be restored. You know that you'll be lifted out of this estate of sin and misery. You know that you will be brought home into the holiness and happiness of God's presence. And you know that your final state will be better than the first. This is no guarantee that you're going to see some big turnaround in your plot line in this life. Right? The circumstances of your earthly life might very well go from bad to worse. <clears throat> that line just might be kind of a straight diagonal, sharp, steep, you know, cliff. And the, heavily, uh, the happily ever after ending 
that we're talking about, you know, it doesn't minimize or sugarcoat how hard your life might really be. We've, we've seen the story played out time and time again in the scriptures. We know the trajectory of the gospel story that we've been brought into. And in some sense, we can say with the psalmist, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad because we look back on Christ and we remember but we're also still in real pain. We're still in the middle of a psalm like this, really crying out, restore our fortunes, O Lord. That's going to be our prayer through this life. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. And when the story of life takes a turn for the worse, then we're going to weep, and we're going to weep with those who weep. This world has been called a veil of tears. That's a valley of tears. You know, valley. Um, And we can't help but take that valley seriously and take those tears seriously. But when we see Jesus, when God raises us from the dead in the new heavens and the new earth, the great resurrection on the last day, when every part of our humanity is restored and the final state is better than the first, and we see it and know it, the ending will be great, not just in contrast with the sufferings of this life, the ending will be great because of the sufferings that we endure. The happy ending where God wipes away all our tears is all the greater because right now we have plenty of tears that he has to wipe away. We take our tears seriously because they'll be our occasion for witnessing and receiving and celebrating the tender mercies of our Lord. We take our tears seriously so that we can take the coming resurrection and restoration seriously. So C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce, We might say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for this, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Tim Keller writes, the joy will be all the greater for all the evil that we've suffered. I don't know how to explain that. I don't know how to account for it, except to say that God is truly great. He does great things, and his ways are beyond our ways, and he said he'll do it, and surely he's able to do it. And again, the proof of this is the gospel story of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was known truly as the man of sorrows. It's like one of his titles, the man of sorrows. And even though he knew resurrection was coming, he really suffered, and he really wept. And he he took his tears most seriously. And anyone looking at his life right up through the moment of his burial could be tempted to think that this was all just a tragic loss and to wish these things had never befallen such a beautiful person. And if his story had ended there in the tomb, we'd never be thankful for his suffering. It would just be tragic. But with his resurrection, we actually become thankful for all the tears that he shed. And we praise him for the suffering that he endured. In his resurrection, his great suffering itself was transformed to be the great occasion for his glory, for the celebration of the mercy and grace of God. So the final state of Jesus is so much greater than the first because of his sufferings, because he was crucified. His glory is greater because he bears the scars of the nails and the spear. The Son of God went out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing. And it's because he had those seeds and he sowed them 
that he came home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Sheaves, you know, bundles of whatever you harvested. <clears throat> so what is it? What, what did Jesus bring home with him? What was his harvest? I mean, he's, he's bringing us. He's bringing his bride, his people harvested from the lands of suffering and death. When Jesus came into the world and told his disciples to follow him, you know, at one time he said, look up, look out there. The fields are white for harvest. Right? So Jesus sowed our salvation with his own weeping. And when we follow him in his harvest work, it will often mean our own weeping, our joining him in a weeping like his, our suffering for the sake of his mission in the world. But it will result in the gathering in of the nations as the church comes home, bringing the harvest with her. Jesus shares the shape of his own story with us. That's his story. And we get to share it. We get to participate in it. So your tears are real, and you should take them seriously so that you can take the coming res resurrection seriously. You should take God most seriously when he promises to restore your fortunes and to wipe away your tears, to bring you into off-scale infinite happiness when you see Jesus. In Christ, the story is already written for you who believe, it's a story that God wants said among the nations, as it says in our psalm. He wants it told to all peoples so that he will be praised for the great things he's done for us. So go and tell your friends this story, like, like Mary Magdalene was told. Go and tell. And all the disciples, go and tell after you've seen the risen Lord Jesus. Those who sow in tears, who go out with weeping, they shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing in a good harvest. And together with Jesus and his Father, and the Holy Spirit who unites us. Our mouths will be filled with laughter and shouts of joy, and we'll all live happily ever after, world without end. Amen. Go tell that story. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, when you restored our fortunes in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus, as our substitute, as our champion and our redeemer, it was like a dream. How can this be true? that you would raise Jesus from the dead on our behalf. But it is true, and we are glad. Come, Lord Jesus, and restore all our fortunes in your return. Show us your face. Wipe away our tears. Bring us into our true home with everlasting joy that is all the greater for the veil of tears that we've endured in this life. We don't know exactly how this is possible. We know you can do it. You can do great things. You have done great things. Let everyone in the world see the great things you've done and be glad. We pray this in your name. Amen.